I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before I knew it, I'd fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion, Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 71 people are murdered every day. These are the stories of Africa's killers and criminals and what it takes to catch them. My name is Paul Llewellyn, I'm a journalist and a true crime filmmaker, and my co-host as always to discuss crime on the continent is Gerard Labaskachny, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases, and he is the profiler. Please visit our YouTube page and subscribe. Simply search Profiler Africa. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. Simply search Profiler. And uh, please do share your favorite link. You can also engage with us on our social media pages. Our Twitter and Instagram handle is at Profiler Africa. Please also join the group on Facebook. Questions, suggestions, you're uh, welcome to uh, send them along. And we do incorporate them into our thinking and planning. And we'll, um, I've actually got a list of feedback from you guys that we're going to be discussing just later today when we uh, do some planning for upcoming episodes and what have you. So do, please do get in touch with us. We're also going to be running a competition next week. Um, so you can tune in next week for details. Um, and we're going to be giving away two copies of Nicole Engelbrecht's uh, brand new book, um, Samurai Sword Murder, the Morne Haramsa story, um, which yeah, we signed copies, Nochal. So um, tune in next week for details on how you can win a copy of Nicole's book um, via the podcast here. Um, we're also going to be giving you kind of more admin info next week, things like Patreon. We started up a Patreon um, effort, so if there are folks out there who want to help contribute to the podcast, you can do so. Um, the one thing that you must realize, I think, as a listener, is that the podcast is something that we do as um, really a bit of a hobby. Hey, Gerard, it's been a bit of a hobby for the last couple Absolutely of years. Absolutely, so far it's been a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> Um, because, yeah, we record episodes because we like talking about crime and because it's a subject that we both kind of work in quite extensively outside of the podcast. So um just kind of makes it made sense to us to start doing the podcast. But it's kind of become one of those things that we think has maybe a little bit of value to add. And hopefully um you folks enjoy it. We do appreciate your feedback and often lots of good positive feedback. If you're um, listening to the podcast now, grabbing a coffee somewhere, um, you know, zoning out and we can keep you company we're always happy to do that um uh, uh, uh but you know if we want to grow this thing then we're going to need a little bit of support from you guys in the community and um see where it takes us so please guys if you have any ideas for um or sponsors you know sponsors things yeah. that we probably haven't thought about because we've just been too busy doing our day jobs then do reach out to us we're looking for partners we're looking for friends to kind of uh uh you know, join us on this journey that is uncovering the stories of true crime in South Africa. And I think the one thing that we're finding is that not only like today we'll be talking about a, a great classic serial killer case, not only do we have great classic um, and great kind of serial killer, those really meaty stories to talk about, but I think we have a lot of issues to discuss as well you know like our discussion last week with Pino where we ended up talking a lot about the police shows topics like that I think we can 
um, add a bit of value and provide help to provide some deeper insight into how things work around here. Anyway, Gerard, how are you doing? Well, I am dragging my heels into the start of the new year and having to start to actually do some work again. So, yeah, it's, it's, yes, it feels how, like it's Tuesday, but it feels like it's... How was February. Christmas? What did you get up to for Christmas? Just uh, hanged around, really. It was quite nice to be in Johannesburg when there's not much happening. <clears throat> did do a two, three-day hike down in the, uh, what you call that area, Mtentu, which is in, the, in Pondo land in the Wild Coast, uh, just south of Port Edward, which nice. was uh, really amazing. All right, so a nice hike and then back to Joburg. Isn't Joburg the best? I love Joburg over December. It's peaceful, yes. Yeah, yeah. The problem is that, that when you go to the coast, the, the folks don't ever leave the coast, the people that live there. Mm. So you always have to put up with the locals when you go down there. That's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> um, they should come to Joburg when we go down to the coast. That's how it should always have worked, really. Then they'd never have had that problem with the Varleys, mm. you know. Anyway, um, other than that, work-wise, how's work kicking off for you this year? Well, I haven't officially started work. This this week is I'll actually be starting work. That's why I say it's sort of dragging my heels into the start of the new year. And yeah, so kind of again, consulting on uh, workplace violence issues with companies, some court cases again coming up, judgments in some instances and assessments in others. So yeah, it's, okay. the, it's the new year. There's not a lot for us to kind of report on when it comes to any kind of major cases that have been in the news or anything like that? I know this Joburg serial guy, the guy that um, with the sex workers in the city, that that case has pretty much stalled over December. There's court proceedings mm. going on. Um, I see his father said he was going to disown him, which I suppose is fair enough if your kid turns out to be a serial killer. Absolutely. Um, the one thing I wanted to say is that like, I came across this very interesting case, this um, case of this little town, the village of death mm. in the Eastern Cape, where there seems to be just a history of, of, of murders that have been going on there that are yet to be solved. And we were discussing it now, and you mentioned that uh, one of your previous colleagues has been involved in that. So perhaps we can get him on yeah. to mean, discuss this, that this, and other things. With this him. dated back to when I was still in the cops, um, and Colonel Jan de Lange, who actually retired now in December... So we're definitely going to try and get him on the podcast. Uh, and he was sort of the one allocated to that particular case and spent a long time down there trying to get the task team up and running and the case going in the right direction. And as far as I recall, it was, you know, a bunch of old people. Sometimes just the old the grandmother was there. Sometimes it was the granddad and the grandmom. Um, but basically were hit, you know, killed with an axe by some unknown assailant. And as far as I know, till today, it's if it's that same village, it's still unsolved. Um, so that's um, yeah an ongoing case that maybe Yanni, when he comes to do a hopefully comes to do a talk about his career, will will kind of touch on that case also. The village is Zinkolweni, Zinkolweni. Mm. Um, yeah, we must find out about that in the Eastern Cape. Mm. So anyway, um, but yeah, the point I guess for the listeners is that we are going to be. I think we ended off the year with some really incredible mm. guests. Um, I loved the Peter episode last week just because it kind of provided some real insights into, you know, when you understand where the money's being spent or where it's not being spent, it really starts to give you an insight into where some where where challenges are mm. organizationally. You know what I mean? And mm. um, I think that for me, that conversation really resonated, and it's something I think we should continue to do this year is really unpack the state of the police and the state of policing and. The re, you know, we jest about the, well, I say, well, we don't really jest, but we talk about the fact that your knowledge has been kind of totally excommunicated from mm -hmm. the police. And 
you know, I think it's important that we explore more and more what that really means for people practically on the ground. Also, more episodes with Tolly. I mean, wasn't that Tolly episode yeah, just... Yeah. He's got so many cases you can talk about. Sure. But also just, I mean, coming, talking about criticizing the police. I mean, I don't think it's criticizing, commenting on the police. Sometimes it'll be positive if they've done good stuff, and obviously sometimes it'll be negative if they've done bad stuff. And the one article that came up, was it about a week ago, was about the 10 one our version of 911, and how... It was something like how many 700,000 calls were just not answered. And it has about, I think, one third of the amount of people operating that call system that it should have. And how that basically is a, I mean, that's a huge problem. That's your emergency number. And if you phone it and you're not getting a response, that's a huge, 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 huge problem. Um, And that's not the first time that issue has come up. A couple of years ago, the response time was 45 minutes. Most places on average, Eastern Cape was two hours response. But if you've got like 700,000 calls just not being answered, that's a no response, you know. Yeah. So that's, that's a very scary thing. And then that also ties in with the whole issue with the Minister Bahikeli wanting to change the Firearms Control Act, saying, you know, we don't think you guys should be allowed to own firearms for self-defense anymore. And I mean, that's just, you know, how on earth, unless you just purely want to disarm the public, how on earth do you justify that with the, those kind of things where the police can't, people can't even get hold of you? Uh, let alone how long it takes for you to respond to an emergency like a break-in at your house. It's ongoing. I mean, 10 one is for your emergency stuff. It's not like, oh, I came home and found my house burgled. That, you phone the police station, they either send someone out eventually, or you go there and you open up a case. 10 one is about, I'm about to die if you don't come, um, you know, and there's no response. So It leads you to think that, again, it's that, what Peter was talking about last week, that kind of movement towards like, oh, well, you know, you can't phone the police, but you must have a private security company that you can call. It's maybe that, you know, uh, don't worry, the, the security companies will come out. Well, I think that's an example of how we... Will be the response units yeah. available to it's, people it's in how, South Africa. example of how more and more the private industry... I mean, now with that awesome guy who was setting fires here in Sandown or Johannesburg, somewhere in Santon area... Um, and how it's kind of the, the private security companies that played a large role in tracking that guy down yeah. with the police. But so you're going to see that more and more often. I mean, I'm not going to phone the cops if I have some, see someone breaking into my house. I'm going to phone my security company because they're in the area. They've got just as much guns as the, as the private cops do and they're yeah. quicker to respond. So more and more private, like we see with applying for your passport or your ID, you can go do that at your bank. There's a branch of Home Affairs at the bank. It's much more pleasant to do it there. It's faster or et cetera. So more and more of that, and I, like I think we did discuss on Peter's episode that you know they should start to farm these services out. That the police can't provide DNA testing, downloading of of, of cell phones and, and computers, but the private so private companies can, and you have a bit of competition. So the prices obviously are competing for better prices. Um, it's their responsibility to keep their software up to date. That's maybe a better way to go. And, and why not? Why not use a private company? In America, you do. That's kind of how a lot of it's done. No, sure. I mean, it just depends. I think where's that? Where is that tipping point where there is so much responsibility is handed to private security that it enables and empowers private security in certain ways in those companies or those, the, you know, the people that own those businesses and run those businesses. You know, these should not be the people that are wielding that kind of influence and power mm. should they should they mm. um so i think that's where the for me with that i think is it and also you have to differentiate between private companies now doing things like investigations you know that you need to have subpoenas apply for subpoenas for information etc 
versus providing services. So providing services like testing DNA. You're not running the investigation. You're just providing a professional service, sure. that is, or downloading the cell phone or the computer for forensic purposes. You know, that, I think, uh, yes, mm-hmm. you know, it is an issue of, you know, can... But even you see it in corporates where corporates will do their own investigations, their own dockets, and give it to the cops and say, I'd like to open up a case. Here it is for you investigated. Yeah. Uh, and you see that already in corporates, although it still becomes the police's case to take to court. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the solution is, but something that has to work. Yeah, I mean, like the, the farming out things like DNA are great until the guy that owns the DNA company's kid you know, goes off and kills someone. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> then you're not going to get too much feedback on the DNA, I, I bet, you know? Again, that's, it's, that, it's, it's the power being resting in the wrong hands, isn't it? Mm. Um, that said, our discussion is typically about like, okay, structurally issues with the police and the, 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 that are impacting more and more the realities of law enforcement on the ground. And then those pockets of excellence, mm. which you never seem to get away from. And I don't think we'll ever go away. There'll always be good cops Mm. in the police. And today's case is just such an example, an example Mm, of a guy who has kind of had, had that sixth sense, a cop that had that sixth sense. And ultimately, it's what brought a serial killer to justice. the railway killer who surprise surprise is called the railway killer why Gerard well why don't you contextualize well you know because he didn't kill people with the railway but he did kill them along the railways around Pretoria kind of in more the the central area of Pretoria near the Pretoria Zoo for those of you that know that area Um, next to the Pretoria Zoo you know yeah Paul Kruger Road that runs along the side of the zoo and just over the the zoo over the Paul Kruger Road is a Bel Ombre train station so we had some bodies around that, those two points. And then Magnolia Dell, which is kind of, if you come into Pretoria, if you know sort of where Loftus uh, Stadium is, Pretoria Boys High School, there's a quite a nice little sort of park there called Magnolia Dell. Along there, there were some bodies. And then one kind of more like in, the, in between those two points, in kind of the sort of built-up area of Pretoria, eventually there was another body. So if you've ever had to park and go to the rugby at Loftus, it's around there, isn't it? <clears throat> Absolutely. That kind of part of the world. Um, now take us back, what, where are we in time here, Joe? Yeah. Take us back, what year did we, so, did our first case appear? And where are you, I mean, where are you in your, in your yeah. contextualize so, yourself as well? So this is this was interesting because, I mean, this is one, I, don't, I think if you Google it, you won't even find probably, I, I will have to check now whether there's even any news reports. It was one of those that just, just didn't, I guess by nature of how it unfolded, just didn't come to anybody's attention from a media point of view, which is, you know, we don't, obviously we don't try and blast it over the media, sometimes for investigative strategic purposes. But this is jumping back to 2005. So I was obviously at that point in the police for four years um, at investigative psychology, obviously working on cases. And we start to find a couple of bodies along the railway tracks, like I said, um, in Pretoria. 
And this is great for us because, I mean, it's like on our doorstep. I mean, we don't have to travel anywhere. Um, it's, you know, we can have much more control over what's happening. And this is right when you're kind of coming. I mean, it's, you're four years in. You are hitting yeah. your stride by this stage, yeah. I imagine. You've I've done, worked on a couple. You've worked <laughs> on Quarry quite extensively yeah. up to a point by this stage, for example. So yeah. a case like this must have been just, like you say, must have just wet your yeah. lips and, so we, so we formed a task team back then. The Serious and Violent Crime Unit was still open before it was closed during the Quarry case in 2006, for those of you who have been following our podcast. Um, and we kind of roped in, if I recall correctly, two investigators, I think Mike Tupper, who was from Serious and Violent Crime, and Rian, I want to say Rian Cronia, I'm not 100% sure if I can recall. Then, of course, it was myself and Elmery, and I think also Lieutenant Colonel Jan de Lange, who just retired, was, was also part of this little team. So a very small team, as we typically had. Um, and we start to sort of look at these cases. So basically, if I, if I run through what we had in 2005, um, the first one we was discovered in July. He was identified eventually as Mr. Rati, R-A-T-H-I. And this is now at Magnolia Dell, which I said is near Loftus Stadium, Pretoria Boys High, my old school, etc. And there's a train that runs kind of from Pretoria Central and it goes to Hatfield. Um, and along the, and it's kind of a raised train track. So you can't, you know, if you're walking on the ground, it's like a, it's kind of, you know, three, four, five meters up to the to the raised track. It's, it's dirt going up to it. So it's not like a, it's not like a, and you've seen these American TV shows on concrete stands. It's not that kind of... Mm-hmm. And someone discovered a body that at first looked like actually some passerby had been hit by a train. Now, sadly, we do get people who commit suicide by walking in front of a train. You know, And these are their normal passenger trains. You know, I once spoke to a train driver and he said he's like, every train driver's had it where some dude just steps onto the tracks and it's clearly a suicide. Yeah. And of course, those trains take kilometers almost to stop. Yeah. And he just knows there's nothing you can do about it. And he just whack it. And, and we're not going to show these pictures, but you can. You, it's, it's horrific when you see what a train does when it hits a human body. You've got an arm there, a leg there, the, 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 the sort of pelvic area there, the head over there. It just it smashes that body to pieces. So at first it looked like when the police get called to this by the train driver who hit the, tra- hit the, the, the guy, obviously he wasn't, in this case he wasn't moving, um, the cops get there and think, oh, this looks like... Uh, you know, maybe accidental or suicide, etc. But when you look at the body closely and you see, or definitely the autopsy, there's stab wounds, actually a lot of stab a wounds. A significant number. I mean, I can see a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and that's just, just and that's one all small like section of the, the body. The left-hand yeah. side of the chest are so very focal, very localized stabbings. Mm. And, you know, typically stabbings are like between 2 and 5 is the is the standard number of stab wounds. So this falls into the category of overkill. Yeah. So what was left at the scene? His clothing, which wasn't like knocked off of him. Because, you know, when you have high impact things, sometimes, you, you know, shoes are there. Sure. Clothing's literally ripped off the person. This wasn't the case. This clothing was sort of lying in the bushes next to the guy. Uh, no shoes were present at the scene. Uh, we talked about the stab wounds, but there was no stab wounds through the clothing. So obviously the person was undressed before the stabbing took place. Now, you can start to play out in your mind. Was it some sexual activity that got the guy voluntarily undressed? Or was he strangled first, dead, and then stabbing the person? But then why are you stabbing him after? You know, So there's various things you kind of have to go through your head. Um, he was, as I said, identified. Um, um, at that point, he came from Mabupane. By his fingerprints, they identified him. Um, 
and they could see that he'd been murdered in the grass next to the railway and then the body placed on. So clearly it was an attempt to... Would you... You wouldn't have visited this particular crime scene, would you? Yeah. So at this point, no. So we're... And I'm trying to think back now. Unfortunately, I don't have my file for this case. When it was that we got involved... Because yeah, you would have been a couple of cases in, surely. Yeah. When Before we heard about this particular one. So now we jump forward. So that one was, where did I say, July, the body. Yeah, so it was a fresh body. Then also in July. Now we're kind of jumping to near the Pretoria Zoo, Paul Kruger Street, um, just, as I said, on the side of the uh, um, turnaround where the train station is. The train has a big loop where it kind of turns around. You've got just over the road, as I said, the zoo. Just next to it on the side of the murder was the Longenpol, Longenhoven um, High School. And a body is discovered next to those train tracks, not hit and destroyed like the previous one. And we find, um, again, it's uh, uh, stab wounds to the chest and the back, also the arm. Uh, clothing was at the scene, but not on the body. No stab wounds through the clothing. So ready, you can hear this sort of pattern. Shoes missing. Again, almost exactly the same circumstances. Um, but what's quite, quite fair, and again, the, the, the stab wounds are kind of, a lot of it's focalized, voc, uh, what, focalized, well, that's a word, focused, yeah. focused on the sort of top left-hand side of the chest. But what's really interesting, you know, this body's literally lying right next to the tracks, almost in a little pathway where you can see people kind of walk and cross over the tracks. Yes. On one of the railway sleepers next to the body is the words, is the word seven, or the words seven left. Now, of course, we're not sure if this was a message written by the suspect or did someone just for some reason decide to write seven left. On and, and, and it looks, we'll post this photo, it looks like it could quite easily have been smeared in blood. Mm. Um, so it's the number seven, the word left next to it, seven left. I mean, again, this is really when you get, you're looking at this picture, Gerald, and, and surely you're going... Oh, this is some. This is some, this is yeah, like I mean, the movie Seven. This is like <laughs> what is this? The Seven Deadly Sins here. Yeah, we've got yeah. there's seven left. This is a guy that's. You know, we've had two dead bodies. So there's, does that mean there's nine? Nine or the other bodies we haven't found? That's of course one of the possibilities. Yeah. So we had Magnolia Dell now by the zoo, and now we have another body next. But the next month, just over the road from where this body that we've just spoken about was found, also an adult black female, uh, adult black male. My, my apologies. He's also found naked. Bunch of stab wounds, top left, chest. Um, clothing left on the scene, no shoes, no stab marks through the clothing. I mean, this is just, for me, in looking at cases, how they typically happen, linkage, these are just very similar cases. I have not seen this combination of, of types of, you know, no stab wounds through the clothing, shoes missing, clothing left on the scene, adult males. You know, the top left-hand side of the chest is the main focus area. Lots of stab wounds. It's just... It's ringing out. You have to look at this as being the work of the same individual. Now, this third body is the first one where we have some DNA that has been uh, discovered. But, of course, we don't have anything to con compare it to. Now, if we look at this, now, this body, with the, the one I just spoke about, the seven left guy, it's kind of very in the open. I mean, the people, when they started doing their morning walks around, he would have been discovered. Yeah. This guy was on, how can I explain it, the road, Paul Kruger Street. They obviously, in the old days, cut through the mountain that the road would remain sort of flat. So when you kind of go next to the, on the zoo side, if you're walking along the grass next to the road, you would be walking up the little mountain, which the road has been cut through. And you, often people sleep in those areas. And there was an area where you could see somebody had been sleeping, which we believe either this guy was the guy staying there, um, or the suspect stayed there, and this guy maybe was walking through at the time. But there's sort of, you know, you can see sort of, you know, 
plastic and an area where a person will be sleeping, some pornographic magazines thrown around. So again, we have what looks like a sexual murder because the guy's completely naked. Um, you know, he wasn't stabbed and then the clothes removed. So again, the sexual theme, there's some porn magazines lying around, etc. It, it makes you, you know, it, it's again, it's also besides all the similarities that you're screaming out sort of a, a sexualized murder. Yeah, you know, it's, it's curious how the clothing is removed. That's kind yeah. of the, that, you know, was that something that is potential is done voluntarily by something that's yeah. just a couple involved in a sexual act that somebody has your your suspect has convinced somebody to take part in a sexual act with them and yeah. then or has this been a oh a, you know pull out the knife yeah, and say power you know, and control get, get undressed, undressed i'm then. just going to steal your clothes and i mean people yeah. will think and hope anything that okay maybe if i just give him my clothes he's going to bugger off exactly and of course you know but so we don't know and uh, as you'll see later we don't quite get the answers we would like to get from our suspect yeah and uh, after two or three you would think it's interesting as well that this didn't come in you know wasn't a, a case that yeah. came into the media onto the media's radar because yeah. after two or three in a very localized area in mm. pretoria and this is quite a you know quite a prominent part of pretoria as mm. well um if I think correctly, the, um, let me just check the case numbers. This could also be a contribution. That I want to jump back quickly. And our first case was Sunnyside, the guy not, whose Between train stations. was knocked by, by the train. Then we have the first guy along Paul Kruger's street, the seven left dude, is Pretoria Central. And then the, we jump back to the, the, the case that we, are, that we just discussed. Um, and... That's Pretoria Central. But then the next case that we're going to discuss is Brooklyn. So already we have three different police stations that would have been called into it. And now interesting how the first case, and and this body now that we're talking about, it's a female, was found literally not far away from the guy whose body was hit by a train. But it's a completely... the the Brooklyn case. Yes, but it's a completely different case, uh, a police station who deals with it. It can just show you how a few meters can make that linkage aspect you know, interfere with it. Yeah, and, if and I also the fact that this is a female and you've had male victims up to this point. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting is when we were revisiting these crime scenes and we kind of went up to where these bodies had been found, you know, you think trains make a noise? You know, maybe the old chuka trains, you know, uh, what do you call it, those coal-powered um, trains do, but the electric trains make absolutely no noise. And in fact, while we were standing on this crime scene looking at it, we almost get hit by a train because oh, it comes right. around this bend at such a speed wow. and you don't hear it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's quite, uh, well, it's interesting but scary. So yeah. we've got now this fourth body, which is an adult black female, very close to the first guy who's hit by the train. She's kind of just down the embankment, which again was probably why the, 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 the station dealing with it is different. And of course, it's a bit different, you know, adult black female. She was identified. So we've identified some of the bodies so far, some of them not. So she was identified as a sex worker, work, and we actually found the house that she was working out of in uh, Sunnyside. Um, again, some of her clothing is lying around the area, but she's more stabbed in the neck a few times, which is really weird. You don't really get people, if you attack someone with a knife, the actual neck, like the front of your neck on either side of your Adam's apple is typically not where you're stabbing someone. Yeah. Um, and then a few stabs on the sort of back of the neck and the right shoulder. The wounds on the men are so consistent. You can just see why yeah. this particular case would would take a. It's a long, it's a long shot to think that this this female would be linked to the men. You do have on the on the left chest some stab wounds, so you've got proximity. You know, it's very close to where one of the other Fair bodies have been found. Both naked. 
Uh, so another sexual murder, stabbing is the same thing. So some similarities, and we mm. do have series that, as we've discussed, if you've listened to this before, where the guys had male and female victims, adult and children, it's not outside the realm of possibility. So we would be looking at this saying, until we have evidence otherwise, we're going to keep it as part of our case. It's going to get 10 times better investigation work done on it than if it's left back at the station. I can guarantee you that. So no harm, no ho- no foul to the investigation itself, even if we later determine it's not part of our series. It's going to get a lot more expert attention given to it. Can we just unpack that a bit? If you consume true crime content, a, lo- a lot of it, you would be forgiven for for making the assumption that typically a serial killer will pretty much stick to the same kind of of, of victim profile. Mm. In your experience, how true is that? Look, I would say in general, there is, if I look at all the series I worked on, there is more often than not a kind, you know, they'll at least stick to gender and maybe race as a sort of, that's, you know, and that's, again, coming from that fantasy, you know. You, if it's a sexual fantasy, you have a kind of type of person. We all have a type of person that we're sexually interested in. But, again, you have the variations because on the day I want to go out and kill someone, I might not find exactly what I like who's going to go with me. Yeah. Um, so I would say 70% of the time there's quite a relatively consistency amongst the victims in terms of age, race, gender type of thing. Um, but... Again, like I say, we, we just have that experience. You, you never know whether you're dealing with the 70% or the 30%. So you have to, you can't just exclude. And we never used to exclude in South Africa, saying because, oh, this is a female, can't be part of our series. Yeah. This is a white victim, and we've all of the victims have been black so far. It can't be part of our series. We would use the geographic location, the similarities of what's done to the body, more as that's what's going to tell us it's our guy, until we have proof to the, to the contrary. Sure. Um, I think maybe where you would it be fair to say that where the victim profile alters that you you know where the victim profiles are different, um, where you, somebody like a Stuart Vulcan who's killing multiple yeah. types of people, um, that is that a fascination then with the actual act of murder? Is it the the victim profile doesn't matter? It's it's whether it's a sexual pleasure or some kind of other pleasure, that the, the actual act of killing somebody itself is what is the fanta- mm. is the center of the fantasy as opposed to attaching a set of physical traits yeah. to that that would be associated with a victim. Again, it would probably be very individualistic. You know, like Stuart Wilk and Butibur that we often speak about, you know, the kids were more because when he was a kid, he was abused and now he was taking revenge. I'm going to show God because God didn't help me when this happened to me. So I'm going to punish God by target, doing exactly to other kids what was done to me. But then the adult victims, it was more, you know, my ex-wife was a was a whore in his words. Um, so I'm going to go after sex workers, you know, and, and punish them. So you can have the different motives for the different types of victims that you have. And the other ones, we were not quite sure. The Modimole guy, again, raped and, and, and killed some kids, but also did that to adults. He was just non-particularly specific as to why he, he did it. It was just more, you know, whatever. So, again, it's, it's very individualistic, but we, we just know. That. And, I mean, we had a case, Unsolved Series in Stellenbosch in 2003, where little kids, boys and girls, 10, 12, raped and strangled. And then a couple of years, well, I don't know, a year or so later, we find an adult victim on the property of University of Stellenbosch whose DNA matches. Hey, that's very different. So, you know, we just... We, we just know we can't exclude it because it doesn't look the same. 
Yeah. If it's in the area, that's going to be a better predictor of us to say, let's keep it with us until otherwise. Because later in that case, this becomes an even more of a factor because the victim profile changes, changes again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we get to that, though, before we talk about what, you know, because there was a bit of a gap then here. Um, at the time now, you've got a task team together working on this case. One of the key interventions, I mean, obviously geography is a major component here. That's So are you putting teams of police patrolling that area for a period of time? Do you have the ability, you know, what are the main interventions other than following the available evidence mm. that you are putting into place at this stage where you go, you're, pretty, you're convinced you've got a serial, there's been three, four bodies up to now. Um, it's in a pretty similar geographic area. What are your major you know, interventions? Well, let me get opposite this way. We didn't put observation teams in the area in, in this case. Um, I can't recall the specific reason why. If I think back to Quarry, we'd try to get, ask if we could have proper people whose jobs it is to do surveillance, uh, uh, covert surveillance, and it was just a no. Uh, and I probably would imagine that it would be a similar thing here. It's like, well, how long? You know, we can't just put people there for three weeks, hoping that's, you know, and you're going to have to wear the, the, the Magnolia Dell side. Or the, We've the got a few more generals suicide. to appoint this yeah. week. We can't. <laughs> so it didn't happen. Um, and again, I'm trying to think when we got involved. Yeah, but anyway. So no, long story short, we didn't. Sure. I imagine that you guys collectively are working on a number of serial cases, similar yeah. type cases at this time as well. So in a week, how much attention are you able to pay to what to this yeah. case, for example? Well, yeah. I, if I recall this one, we, you know, we were able to give fair amount of continuous attention to it because I mean even though myself and Yanni and Elmery would be working on lots of other cases the two guys as I said Mike Tupper and, and Rian who were allocated from the Sirius Mbana crime unit and they were working out of our office so they weren't going to their office every day they would have been the guys more just full, full that's time. just working on it yeah. and and the rest the three of us myself Yanni and Elmery as I said a lot so and again because it's right there in Pretoria you know, we've, it's, we're able to be there every day, definitely checking on what's going on, uh, etc. So it would have been one of those where we would have had been given, able to give it a lot of attention. Um, and again, a lot of it would be following up the forensic evidence, trying to identify the people. Did they have a cell phone? Is a cell phone missing? Etc. Uh, Etc. Et now, all the attention in the world is only worthwhile at this point if you, I'm assuming, continue to get fresh leads. Yeah. And at this stage, that becomes a challenge. Am I right? Yeah. So we have one more body that I recall we did pick up and we weren't sure. It was kind of in between, like I said, these the Magnolia Del Point and the zoo area. Adult male stabbed in the chest in an open space. This is more kind of close to the old, the, the, what we now call the Pretoria Academic Hospital in the old days, HF Wood Hospital. Many of you might know that who, who are from this area. And it was one of those ones where kind of it's sort of yes but we're not 100 percent sure so um yeah so that's one that we thought we'll keep with us there wasn't much information about it somebody just saw this guy being stabbed and then the guy ran off you know but that was in what we call edmund street as i said quite close to the area i described okay so that's it so then we basically in 2005 we've done all the investigations we can on these cases there's absolutely no leads we've got as i said one dna out of all of these it's not matching anything on the system that we you know have 
Um, but again, we also had that problem back then that not all DNA was being processed and put onto the DNA database. Yes. We didn't yet have that DNA database management. And that, if you go back to the quarry case, we go into at length why that was and what happened and how it was changed years later. Um, so we know the kind of the task team was closed up. Once we've done everything we could, you can't just keep it open forever. We're not having further bodies popping up, um, etc. So that's 2005. Um, and we then move on to other cases because, you know, you, you can only do so much. If, yes, if another body popped up that we thought was the same, we would then obviously would have uh, stepped in and looked at it. All right. Well, maybe that's an appropriate time to have a little breather. Please visit our YouTube page and subscribe. Search Profiler Africa. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. Simply search Profiler. Please do share your favorite link and please do get in touch. So if you'd like to share any thoughts with us, you can drop us an email, profilerafricainfo at gmail.com. So we are discussing the Railway Killer serial case, a case which kicked off in the year 2005 with a number, a number of, of bodies turning up, a number of, of naked men and uh, uh, one lady um, in the Pretoria area around the, the Loftus Pretoria Boys High School, the zoo around that part of uh, the city of Pretoria, if you know Pretoria well. But uh, what happened after that is that the, the case went quiet after 2005. Gerard and his colleagues shut down the task team. And um, then, Gerard, we leap forward to the year 2013. When what happens? Yeah, so... Apart from you getting an email. <laughs> yeah, so eight years <clears throat> go by. And, you know, every Unsolved series always nags the back of your mind like a... We didn't have conclusive DNA linking the cases. It was still our own, you know, you know, linkage kind of analysis. We were sure it's the same case, same guy. But you always had a little lingering doubt. Maybe we were wrong, you know. Maybe it wasn't as serious. Especially a one with a good name, like the Railway Killer. It's a good name. It's a fantastic name. And it's right there on our doorstep. So, you know, it always nags me. But you've got so many other cases that come in, you know, series and otherwise, that, you you know, you just have to move on. Yeah. So we get a list, because by now, 2013, you know, the DNA database team is up and running. There's people who are picking up the hits, managing them, contacting people, and obviously we're the first people they do contact. And they say, um, hey, you know, we've got two DNA matches of murders. Um, Here you guys go. And of course, we don't recognize the case numbers because we're dealing with hundreds of case numbers over years. So we go get those dockets and we realize, hang on a minute. One of these DNA cases is one of our railway cases, the one where we did have DNA, the only case we had DNA from. Who, know, who noticed that? Who was the guy, though? Who was the person that put two and two together and went, everyone? Um, well, I think, you know, the list would have been sent to Yanni, Colonel DeLange. Yeah. And then, you know, he would have then started to go, you know, hey, this is on our doorstep. Because that must be quite an exciting day where you get a yeah. DNA match. So we then see, hang on a minute. And this was the guy at the, uh, as we mentioned, the guy one of, uh, there near the, near the zoo but not on the railway side, the, the actual zoo side, um, which we did mention had DNA. But now it's matching a case that we don't know about. So we get that case, which is registered at Pretoria Central. 
in November of that year, 2005, so this would have been the final case in the order of things, and this was an 11-year-old boy. A school kid found in his school clothes, stabbed in the torso and the neck with a knife, so kind of similar to what we're seeing. Um, the suspect's DNA was found on the broken knife handle that was found at the scene. Um, it's a pretty convincing place to have DNA. Yeah, and, and thankfully we did identify this little boy, so we were able to, you know, um, it was, his parents were able to be informed. Okay. Um, and of course, this would have been investigated at the time, back then in 2005, by the local detectives. I guess because it was a boy, he wasn't naked, um, and it was, again, you know, kind of in between our two main zones. Yeah. I guess, I mean, I don't even recall this case, so it might have also just slipped through our cracks. Would we have looked at it and said, this could be our guy? It's quite different. It's not exactly the same area. He's clothed. We can't take all stabbings. We have to do some kind of... So we didn't know about the case, firstly, let's and not, would we have included it? Let's not forget that these are not the only murders going on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, this is amongst a multitude of additional yeah. you know, murder crimes in the area. Maybe if this was Canada... <laughs> Or, exactly. or England, it would have, we would have said, wow, 100% definitely. And it would have come to our attention because you just don't have, lot, you know, you don't have lots of murders. Exactly. But this is South Africa. Yeah, so there's lots of other murders going on just generally yeah. <laughs> for our international viewers, just to remind yeah. them. But of course, now we go, well, obviously it's part of our case because it's this little boy's, the, the, the DNA from the knife handle is matching our suspect's DNA from one of our earlier cases that we had investigated mm. as part of the task team. So now... Again, it comes back to the issue we said, you know, our guys are not always specific as to who they're targeting. Yeah. So, you know, it's a very sad little case. I mean, if you look at the crime scene picture, this little boy in his school, you know, in South Africa, school kids wear school uniforms. He's lying face down. His little school satchel is there. It just breaks my heart, this photo. And I mean, you know, as an 11-year-old kid, a little kid who, it's just, you know, it's just horrible. No, this is this is why, I mean, I, I understand how many, you know, the reality of people in South Africa and that, um, you know, it's just the thought of set, sending your kid out into the world, yeah. you know, when they're not like 37 already. Yeah. <laughs> and he was obviously, like many kids do, going to walking by themselves, traveling to school and would have come across our suspect. Yeah. Um, but again, n nothing leads wise from that particular case. Exactly. <clears throat> Until you found they yeah. had this link, and then there are further steps. There are there. there yeah. There's now. This is where the this is the really amazing part of the case. Again, yeah. so how often in our conversations is it about a little bit of luck, yeah. but a little bit of luck that always comes wrapped in a great cop. Yeah. You Somebody know? doing their job diligently. You know? Exactly. So, so this is where we've got to jump back. So we're, we're telling you about this case, although at this point when it happened, okay, we didn't know about the little boy's case. Sure. Hadn't come to our attention. Remember, DNA links take a while before yes. they you know, get processed and linked. Um, but in 2012, so prior to the, um, us finding out about this little boy's link through DNA, um, 2012, what happens? 19th of October, 2012, an 18-year-old guy was walking with a friend comes across this dude who says, hey, I'll buy you and your friend some food, you know. Okay, as they're kind of walking with him, the friend turns around and says, no, whatever, I'm not interested. We shouldn't go with this guy. Uh, but the other 18-year-old man goes with this, our suspect. And they continue to walk. They kind of walk along what is um, um, Nelson Mandela Road and the Fountains Road, get to a bit of a deserted area. Suspect takes out a knife and pulls the young guy under a bridge. 
you know, where basically um, he robs him of his phone in cash and then basically rapes him anally. Um, and there's DNA from this case too. It hasn't yet been come brought to uh, our attention. But this incident happens. Yeah, so this is now 2012. In 2013, so a couple months later, I can't exactly recall, it would have been probably around about June, July of 2013. A man who, I'll, by the name of Temba Villakazi, or known as 666, um, he's 32-year-old, He's walking in town, kind of in the same general area in Pretoria, and he sees a policeman who just happens to be, I think, on his way to work in uniform, Warrant Officer Hermanus van Amberg from Pretoria Central Police Station. And he sees the suspect look at him, and he sees the suspect almost do like this cartoon-like double-take, like uh, uh, left, right, left, right, and jump into a nearby taxi. So this cop could have just said, well, whatever, but he thought, no, this is very suspicious. Yeah. And he says, says to the guy, get out the taxi, come here. Call me so. <laughs> Call me so. And basically pats him down and finds drugs on him. And he said, well, sir, I'm arresting you for possession of marijuana. Or whatever, I think it was marijuana. Mm -hmm. And he's now literally walking to the police station with this suspect in handcuffs. And our rape victim that we just spoke about from the year before says, excuse me, officer, that's the guy that raped me. So the rape year. victim just happens to be on the side it's, of the road yeah. where the policeman is marching our timber down the road here. Absolutely. I mean, again, guys, you can't write this stuff. <laughs> and so he goes, well, well, come with me to the police station. So Mr. Villacazzi is now arrested for the possession of drugs, but also the case is, you know, he's, he's, it's brought to the attention of the rape investigators. Uh, we then charge him, obviously, for that particular case. Mm. And then, of course, we then realize we get a notification that not only does this rape case match our two of our murder cases, um, but, you know, this, this is our suspect. Mm -hmm. So and that's how this case got solved. So not through our efforts and hard work, but through a uniformed policeman who just sees a dude behaving strangely, pats him down, finds drugs, God intervenes and brings the rape victim in the pathway of him walking this guy to the local police station, that case is then linked, at least at that point, by identification. And then, of course, the DNA comes forward. So what happens is we don't know about this rape case and the guy being caught by this good uniform cop. Mm. So how do we then find out about all of this? Because, again, mm. this takes a while. Yeah. Um, we, what happens is, is that Lieutenant Tusi, who's from, the, I think at that time, the Provincial Investigation Unit, one of the people we had trained over the years in serial investigation, great investigator, says, hey, Gerard, can I come and see you about a series? But we've got the suspect. And we said, like, hey, absolutely, for sure, come see us. So he kind of comes to us, and then we realize, but Tusi, this, this is the railway series. And so Tusi is only looking at the DNA-linked cases. He says, oh, I've got two murders and this rape, um, you know, the, the little schoolboy, the one adult male, and this rape. And Tusi, this is the railway killer case. Because we look at the photographs, and we're like, we know, he actually did other stuff. And let, let us show you those cases. So it's just like, I don't know, you can't, like I said, you can't. I would just love stuff. to be in the room when you have those, one of those kind of epiphanies, because uh, that's yeah. what it is. It's a, it's a yeah. true epiphany, isn't it? And that's where we find out about guys. sort of this other stuff and how the guy was actually together. caught. And we're like, wow, we write a, a congratulations letter, of course, to warrant officer who caught the guy saying, do you know you actually caught a serial killer and great work, congratulations. Um so anyway, so that's about, I think, June, July 2013. And of course, now it's preparing the case for trial, etc. And, you know, these things don't go quickly. So by August, he enters into a guilty plea 
for three of the murders, the two adults um, and the male child. And he claims that he is a Satanist and that, you know, um, you know, Satan told him to do it. Yeah, tell us about first of all, first of all, first of all, a word to the wise. Kids, adults, everybody out there. If a guy offers to get you some lunch and he's got 666 and satanic tattooed on his his forehead, you know, I mean, rather get a sandwich from somebody else, guys, okay? You know, there's no such thing as a free lunch, literally. Exactly. Um, About this guy, tell us a bit about this guy. What is his demeanor? Is he big? Is he small? What's he like? What's your... What's your impression of him? I, I I don't believe that you sat down and did an extensive interview with him, no. but just your impressions of this guy. Kind of nondescript. I mean, his tattoos are mainly on his chest and his back. I think he had one on his arm. I think he had one on his... No, he had on his face, actually. He has a tattoo of No, exactly. Six, six, He's got 666 six, six, satanic yeah. tattooed on his face. That's why I'm saying do not accept lunch or don't go for lunch with people with that tattooed on their forehead yeah and he looks if i i mean i again i don't have the file with me unfortunately i'm sorry about that it, it looks like prison tattoos to be honest with you yeah um which could also possibly explain the gap between 2006 and when did he rape the other guy 2012 for sure you know the other thing i just wanted to point out is that here you know unfortunately in south africa because you guys have such a big caseload when you get to solving a case like this you don't really have time to go back and and reinvestigate all the components of the case do you i mean we have to be happy in south africa with the fact that we've caught somebody and we've taken them off the street and locked them up unfortunately that ability to go back and go were there other victims is can we help other Mm. potential families who have lost people to kind of answer the question of what happened to a relative for example we don't really have the ability to be able to do all of that kind of post capture Mm. investigation do we yeah i mean again i think at least one or two of these victims of the ones that we've talking about are still you know again not identified yeah so that's that's the sad sad reality yeah so obviously our suspect is sent off for observation uh he goes to vescopi's hospital where i used to work He's observed by two very competent psychiatrists and a team of other people, mental health practitioners, found fit to stand trial. They did diagnose, well, not diagnose, they did make a classification of malingering, so he was clearly trying to fake things. He does enter a guilty plea, but he brings in the whole Satanist angle and blah, blah, blah. We get uh, Captain Suzette Knutzer, who was then working in our unit at the time. She's wonderful. And she, I mean, uh, she's featured in many of the cases we've discussed before, who she used to work at the Occult Crimes Unit. And she says, look, I think she interviewed the guy, looked at the circumstances, she said, look, there's nothing to do with Satanism, this is this bullshit story. Um, and he is found guilty. Now, what I don't agree with is that they didn't charge him on everything. They decided to say, listen, he's prepared to plead guilty on, I think, the the three and three incidences, the schoolboy and I think two of the boys, two of the men who were murdered, but not, I think, the rape case. And I guess that the prosecutor was looking at like going, well, look, listen, these are the more serious cases. These are going to get him life because he killed a, a boy. That's automatic life sentence. You know, adding the rape case, that would definitely be less years than the, any of these three murders. Uh, you know, you go on trial, you never know how that's going to go. You might, you know, you risk something going wrong and not getting a conviction so i think if i recall correctly they decided to say look we're gonna it's we're happy to drop because we've done a linkage analysis saying you know that the three along the railway tracks you know were also similar that definitely is the same suspect so that's our similar fact evidence then you had the little boy with the dna 
one of those three similar fact cases, you had DNA and, of course, the rape. But I guess the prosecutor felt, look, you know, this guy's pleading guilty. We save time, money, victim, people having to come and testify. Yes, we lose out maybe on one or two cases, but it wouldn't have changed the length of time he's going to sit in prison. So I understand the logic there. I don't 100% agree in an ideal world, but okay, yeah. We know what he did the other ones, but he's going to sit just as long as if we added those cases. It is what it is, man. And in South Africa, like I say, I think we've got to be happy with caught and off the street and at least charged with some murders. Yeah. That's <laughs> going to keep him locked up for a fair amount of time at least. Yeah. So, as I said, there is, well, I mean, Satanism claims wouldn't have helped him anyway. You know, he's yeah. found fit to stand trial. The hospital says he's not mentally ill. Mm. So quite frankly, whether Satan did tell you to do it or not, that's not an excuse. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so the day he's found fit to stand trial, that's admitted he's, he's, he's found guilty. I then testified at sentencing that he's a serial murderer. Surprise, surprise. Danger to society. Surprise, surprise. Mm-hmm. And then on the 5th of August, he was sentenced to two times 18 years, which would be for the other adult murders, and the life imprisonment um, for the, the little boy's murder. And he indicated he wasn't going to to appeal that so again you know one of those cases that didn't get really much anybody's attention it kind of it was almost this fits and starts kind of series a lot of luck good intervention good work by that warrant officer i think he should give him the the most credit but even to see who got this sort of almost after the fact you know to get everything ready for a trial to present the defense to convince the defense also listen (laughs) You know, the defense lawyer would have said to the client, listen, guy, this is all this information against you. You know, you, you're not going to get out of this plead guilty. So, you know, that, that work is still a lot that was done by the consistency of being there as that as that detective that just sticks it out, as that yeah. lieutenant who's just there to stay the course, who is able to, who you know, just being there to be able to ultimately pull the case together all together yeah. that's you so know important. he knew us so getting me to come and testify at sentencing getting Suzette to do the assessment that this is not satanic not that that would have helped him um etc and so yeah and he was another example uh, and and we come across these all the time of just a fascinating story yeah um you know not only is it a serial killer case and everybody likes a a good serial killer story, to be quite honest, if you're into true crime. But again, another one of those stories that has some just incredible twists of luck that to mm. kind of uh, that bring it to a conclusion. How many times do we come across oh, yeah. that? It's incredible. Um, it kind of blows my mind. Um, so the railway killer. There's another one to add to our list of South African mm. serial killers. Very underpublicized. Very not you know not reported on by the media because it didn't come into the onto the press's radar at the time, but certainly a serial killer case um, that is, 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 is worthy of... Mm. Um, no, it's, it's unique, again, because we had males being targeted. We don't get that often in our series. We sometimes get the absolutely. suspects have male and female, like Stuart Wilkin, we'd come back to him, a few others. Um, so this was, again, unique in that aspect, you know, sexual theme with the males... Um, so what about that female? Do I still think he could have done that one? Sure, I don't know. I still think it's a possibility, but I don't know for yeah. certain. You know, uh, he didn't comment on it, etc. Um, so she could. It might just been luck, coincidence that she's found close by the very first body we discovered. I don't know. But um, the fact that he got a life sentence means, unless correctional services screw something up, he should only be coming up for a parole hearing in 2040. Okay. Um, Look, he seems like the kind of guy that's probably quite happy in jail. Yeah, yeah. 
to be honest. Yeah, I think he'll fit in very well because he, as I said, I can't recall what if he did have a criminal record mm. prior to these. This is that case that you need to go back and go, okay, where was this guy from 2005 to 2012? You know, that's yeah. those are the years you really want to unpack. And sadly, that the DNA database wasn't up and running. Yeah. So you could have done other rapes. I, I almost can say without a doubt he must have done other stuff unless he was in prison for something else in that time period. Um, he would have done other stuff. Yeah, here you would have to go to find people that knew him, family, mm. friends, mm. associates, figure out where he lived, what mm. neighborhoods, who are his neighbors, who are his friends. Um, you'd have to follow that course, wouldn't you, if you wanted to kind of figure out. Because, Gerard, if he's not locked up in that period, which is very possible, considering, like mm. you say, I mean, they look like prison tattoos. If he's not locked up, this does not seem like the kind of guy that's not killing men in or at that least period. raping them, or robbing them, robbing them. It, you know. And, of course, the robberies might not at all ever be linked to this, you know, if he was yeah. just committing random robberies. So, I mean, he's still in Pretoria, but in 20, 2005 and 2012, he's still obviously in Pretoria because that's when he committed the rape was in 2012. So, yeah. Well, there you go. That's the story of the railway killer, guys. An interesting one. Um, we're going to be... Um, we got so many cases lined up for this year. It's crazy. We actually, in the course of recording the podcast, Jared got some feedback from one of his former colleagues, Colonel Jan Delange, who has uh, agreed to join us um, on an episode uh, or two of the podcast. So that'll be exciting. We'll be recording um, with him imminently in the near future. Again, um, profilerafricainfo at gmail. If you have ideas for cases that you'd like us to cover, if there's any stories that you're really particularly interested that we've um, we've not covered yet, please do let us know. We'll put them onto our list. Um, if you have any particular guests you'd like mm. us to speak to, do let us know. We'll put them onto our list. What topics? Um, you know, if you've got a, you're curious about a particular topic, a field in forensics or something like that, or just general questions, we can even have an episode where we just answer questions. <laughs> absolutely. Q&A. We're going to be doing that too. Um, we've got lots of planning uh, kind of uh, that we're doing for the podcast for this year. We're really going to try and ramp things up and um, uh, extend the audience and get more and more people listening. So if you have uh, any thoughts on how you can help along with that effort as well, do get in touch with us. Um, we do love doing the podcast and bringing you these stories and we just want to I think I think now we've kind of come to the point where we want it to be all that it can be and uh, I think to do that we're going to need to embrace you guys out there the community and uh, do it together because um, that's what this whole uh, media environment's about isn't it holding hands and uh, telling great stories so Gerard um, thank you so much Thank As always, um, we're now going to go into a bit of a brainstorm and a planning session, talking about our ideas for what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the year. Um, we'll bring you more details on that next week. Thank you very much for listening. As always, you can check out our social media pages. We'll be posting some stuff related to the case um, today, some of the crime scene photographs, um, some images of the killer and some of the, uh, the key people involved in the case. And uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with more Profiler Africa. Thank you very much, Gerard. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, listeners. And we will speak to you soon. Rest easy, everybody. Mm-hmm.